Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and as you know by now, on this show, we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. And this season, we're building our campaign for the Fallout role-playing game. I realize I say this a lot, but I kind of feel obligated to. If you don't have a copy of the rules, head out to your local game or bookstore, or if that's not possible, check out the Modifius Entertainment website at modiphius.net to grab either a physical or PDF copy. Oh, and in case you didn't know already, if you buy a physical copy of the book, you get a PDF copy for free. So, that's pretty cool. Now, if you've been keeping track, this week is not only going to be a build show, but also a recap for my group. So we've got a lot of cool stuff to do today. But before we can do that cool stuff, I have to go in and cover a few things that, well, I messed up last week. Okay, one, when the group was going to do the rescue of the woman, said there were explosives on the door that they had to hit. I didn't say what kind of explosives. There are three frag mines. So we'll go with that. Also, that same scene, basically. The body that was in there should have been a black suit and blue tie. I said black suit and black tie. Don't know where my head was at, but I'm pretty sure it was stinky. And towards the end, you know, Victor's laying on all of this that he knows about Jackson Denman and he knows about the relationship and he knows and he knows and he knows. I realized that early in the campaign when we were writing, he acted like he didn't know who Jackson Denman was. Honestly, at the time, I wasn't planning on tying this in like this, so it's been a change. So the way we're going to play that off is that Victor really was just keeping it where it was. He was keeping his mouth shut. He was basically just keeping stuff from the group that they didn't know about at the time. Of course, we see that all blew up on him. Handle that with your group however you see fit to do it. All right, we've got that out of the way. Let's go ahead and recap what we built last week. We began with the group having completed their meeting and set up from the previous session, and it was decided that Victor didn't have anything for him to move on at the time, mostly because he needed to get more information about the group had reported to him. So it was agreed that the group would have a little time off to work on their own thing. Of course, the group wasn't off for very long when they were approached by Mr. Handy Robot representing the Malloy family, and they were looking to hire the group to locate and rescue, if needed, the daughter of the family. The group agreed to the meeting and they were escorted to the city of Maplewood, located on the southwestern border of downtown and St. Louis County. The group had not one but two encounters with the synths they've been running into recently, but they managed to win and continue to their meeting. Their arrival at the Malloy residence gives them an immediate impression that they're getting ready to get involved with money. They met with the head of the family, Tucker Malloy, and he tasked them with finding his daughter, giving her last known location as the Memorial Hall. And they were made aware the girl had been missing for a couple of days. The group dealt with security both at the hall and on the street. And chasing one lead after another, they wound up at a small warehouse. Entering, they found a very dead young man and an emaciated, scared, crying young woman. She didn't say much other than to say, Denman, Dad, why? The group realized they were set up and, of course, returned to the Malloy residence to confront Mr. Malloy. He paid the group as agreed and admitted he'd brought them in to test their abilities. The group might have considered taking action against Malloy, but the amount of heavy security he had on hand should have discouraged them. So they took their caps and returned to Victor, who was very surprised they'd taken the job. He let them know that Malloy has been a rival of his over the years and is an exceptionally dangerous individual. 
He agreed to look into this development as well and suggested that they take a couple days off and lay low. We'll pick up the build there. The group now has multiple irons in the fire. There's the break-in at Victor's storage facility and the amount of damage that was done. There's the multiple attacks against the group by synths using Garson tactical gear. There's Longsworth and where he sits on the spectrum of involvement in all of this. There's the location they were at a couple of weeks ago that was chock full of synths. We've also got the situation with Chip and the setup he was a part of. And last but not least, we've got Tucker Malloy and his connection with Jackson Denman. To quote Kevin Costner as Crash Davis in the movie Bull Durham, we're dealing with a lot of shit here. Sorry for the profanity, I just thought the quote fit. Look, I'm not going to lie here. I have no idea which direction my group's going to want to go in, much less yours. I have the advantage of having a pretty big head start on my group, so by the time they get to this, I should have most of those angles worked up. But for right now, we have to pick a line and run with it. And with it being the most recent thing that's happened to them, let's run with that Tucker Malloy angle. I mean, he used them and then basically taunted them, so it's not a big stretch to think the group might want a bit of revenge. And we're going to start with the group meeting someone new. As they go to leave the pass, either to head back to their own place or head towards Maplewood, one of the guards stops them. He lets them know that, there's a fellow waiting outside the walls who wants to speak with you. This'll probably put him on edge a bit, but the guard will assure him that his dog didn't want to come in and he wouldn't leave the dog out there. Heading outside, they quickly see the individual, though it's the dog they see first. It's an ink black pit bull and it's obviously been eating well. Walks up on the first member of the group it can reach, sniffs all over them, then sits down and stares at them. The individual turns out to be a woman. Standing around five foot six, she's clad in faded military fatigues, it's cobbled together armor. She's got a laser pistol holstered on her hip and a laser rifle slung across her back. They also see a couple of grenades hanging from her belt. She's wearing dark sunglasses and she takes them off to address the group. She also reaches down the front of her armor, pulling out something on a chain. That something is a badge, which is something most of the group will probably have never seen. The badge, which has sort of an inverted teardrop shape, has the small circle in the center of it with the state of Missouri on it and the words State Patrol on the ring that surrounds it. She gives him a moment to check it out, then introduces herself. Name's Mackenzie Cook, Missouri State Patrol. Her voice is higher pitched, but very confident. This isn't a woman who shies away from anything, or at least that's how she presents herself. Now, rather than play out the entire conversation, let's just lay out what she's got to say and you can work it out however the flow of your group goes. She'll give them a bit of a history lesson, noting that about 30 years ago, a couple of dozen men got together and decided that there needed to be people that the citizens of the state could rely on again. They didn't want to take on the identity of a particular city, so they decided to resurrect the old Missouri State Patrol. The hope was that the re-emergence would lead to more folks wanting to step up and join up, but that hasn't been the case. As of today, there are a dozen patrol officers working their way around the state, trying to help whomever they can, wherever they can. She's been monitoring various activities and incidents around the city over the past week, and she wanted to meet the group that's been basically at the center of it all. She's not looking to dispense justice on them, though. She wants to help. She has a few connections, and she believes that by sharing information with them, she can not only help them catch those that have been trying to kill them, but they can help her by taking those people off of the board, making it easier for her to keep the peace. 
She will try to recruit them to the state patrol, but she'll also acknowledge that she figures they won't join. And she is aware of Victor and who he really is. And while she doesn't approve of everything he does, she does note that without Victor, Diamond Pass wouldn't exist. And if Diamond Pass didn't exist, this city would be complete chaos. She's not asking the group for anything other than to tell them about the various attacks over the past few days and the incidents they've been involved in from their perspectives. And for the record, she knows about the attack after the Twisted Tap meeting, the attack on the way to the Twisted Tap later, the attack on Victor's storage facility, and the deal with Malloy. So if they try to swerve her on those, she's going to call them out on it. And you can use as much of the detail from those builds as you want. She can help the group fill in a few blanks. Jackson Denman is the owner of Garson Tactical, though he owns it through a shell corporation called Mass Logistics Incorporated. She also notes that Mass Logistics is owned, on paper anyway, by Tucker Malloy. She also knows that Malloy and Denman have been friends pretty much their entire lives, and their parents before them were tight, so breaking that bond is going to take a lot. She also adds that Denman worries her far more than Malloy, since Malloy is pretty much a bruiser, while Denman is more of a quiet thinker. She's also got a bit of Longsworth news. He's been gradually making his way east over the past couple of years, and he's spent the past two years working out of Kansas City. Her contact there sent word to her a couple days ago that Longsworth is a more serious player than he lets on. He's got a lot of caps, a lot of connections all over the country, and he is fearless. He does what he believes will be the best for him and his business and tends to not worry about what others think. Her Kansas City Connection reports that he's got Longsworth tied to at least a dozen murders and at least three times that in missing people. So don't let that friendly exterior fool you. He is not someone to be dismissed. Anything that the group chooses to tell her about that she didn't know, she will offer to reach out to her contacts and see what she can find out. All she asks for is an exchange of information. They tell her what they find out about the people she gives them, and she'll dig up what they're missing on the people they need. She doesn't care if they tell Victor or not, so there's really not a whole lot of reasons to not do it. She lets them know she's using an old St. Louis Metro Police substation as a base of operation, and it's located a couple blocks north of the church they were in when they were set up by the ghouls. She doesn't have regular patrol times, so if they stop by and she's not there, they can leave her a note and she'll get back to them. Oh, and once the dog realizes the group is cool, he starts rubbing up on all of them looking for pets. Cook introduces him as Caesar and notes that he looks like a tough guy, but I think I've been feeding him too many snack cakes. When they're done, she puts her glasses back on, unslings her rifle, and heads off east on her patrol, leaving the group to head to Maplewood. Now, if the group wants to talk and walk, she'll do so, but she'll bail before they go to encounter Malloy, noting that this is your thing. I gotta help the rest of the area. So, time for the group to get their evens, as it were. Entering Maplewood, they run into the same Protectrons and security robots they saw during their last trip here. Everything is running just as it had been, which should make the group nervous, especially since we tend to do this from time to time. And when they get to the Malloy residence, they're really going to be a little unsettled. Instead of the massive security that was just very recently there, there's nothing. No sentry bots, no Protectrons, no Mr. Handys, nothing. They can get all the way up the walkway and to the door without anybody stopping them. 
The door is locked, but a simple perception plus lockpick difficulty zero will get it open. And once they're inside, it gets even weirder. There was furniture and decorations everywhere, but in less than a couple of hours, this place has been completely emptied. They're going to be on alert, but they're also probably going to want to check out as much of the house as possible. Lay the house out however you want, but there is a basement, and they hear a radio from down there. It's set to Diamond Pass Radio, for those who are curious. And when the group makes their way down there, they notice Riggins laid out on the floor. It would appear he's been mostly taken apart. He can't move. He can speak, however, and he's exceptionally apologetic about how the original meeting between the group and Mr. Malloy went, noting that he had no clue that Mr. Malloy was capable of such a thing. The group can engage with Riggins if they want to, and he'll report he doesn't know what provoked Malloy to do this to him. After some discussions, his eyes will light up bright, then the group hears Malloy's voice. I somehow knew you'd be coming back. Why don't we play a little game? A counting game. Ten. Nine. Eight. Yeah, it's a countdown. The group's smart enough to figure that out, and so long as they start hauling tail for the door by the count of five... They'll get out before things get bad. If not, eh, well, we'll hit that in a minute. As they clear the front door and get into the yard, the building implodes. It's loud and dusty, but otherwise clean. The building folds in on itself in a glorious pile of rubble. We'll pick up at this point in a moment. If the group didn't start running at five, they'll get caught up in the rubble as the building implodes. Roll a 1d20. A regular 1d20. For each increment of 5 on the roll, roll an extra 1d6, and I mean a real 1d6, that determines how much damage they take from the debris. They'll also be stuck inside the rubble. In all honesty, this might be a better outcome than if they got out clear, since if this is the result, after what seems like an eternity, they hear a number of female voices calling out as rubble is moved. Eventually, they'll see Melanie Zombrowski and her crew digging them out of the rubble, and I'll finish this thought shortly. If the group got out, they're not out of the woods yet. Enough synths to equal two for each group member show up and attack. If the fight seems to be going easy for the group, toss another one for each member in after the first round. If the fight goes longer than five rounds, Zombrowski and her crew will arrive and catch the synths up in a crossfire. When it's done, she'll approach the group, and this is where we join the two tales we've told. She was working an angle she'd dug up that led her to Tucker Malloy and was on her way over here to have a discussion. Needless to say, the house imploding wasn't what she was expecting, but she's glad they were here since they were able to bail the group out. She is curious as to what exactly happened here, but she suggests they put a bit of distance between themselves and the house before they stop. So she suggests they head towards the east, as she's got a spot just inside the city limits they can grab some rest and a beverage. Her hidey hole is an old donut shop, and I'll leave the layout to you. Zombrowski has the group meet with her in the old kitchen, and her team will handle watch. She asks that the group tell her everything about the situation with Malloy, since what she had heard about him was that he was making deals with Longsworth, and she wanted to know what they were. When they get to the part about him kidnapping his own daughter and killing her boyfriend just to test the group's abilities, she drops a couple of profanities. While she still wants to know what the deal with Malloy and Longsworth is, she thinks she might just kill Malloy on general principle. 
Since Malloy is no longer in the house for her to meet with, she suggests the group makes themselves scarce while she and her crew poke around to see what they can dig up. She will specifically note that you've been in town and seen a couple of times today. The security around here probably isn't going to ask questions before either trying to arrest you or just flat out kill you. My team's just gotten here, so they can poke around. She promises to pass on anything she finds to Victor, and she assures them she'll make sure they get a report as well, if they want. So, the group is frustrated yet again. And I want to step aside for a moment and explain why the group's been coming up goose eggs lately. I know it sucks as a player when you're putting in the maximum effort and not getting the kind of results you want, but as storytellers, we need to remember something. We're at a point in the campaign where we need to set a lot of stuff up. So the group needs to run into a couple of brick walls so they can put pieces together. I mean, I know my group has already figured some of this out, but their characters haven't. So I'm sure there's a lot of frustration. Rest assured, there's a win on the horizon. And I think this is the perfect spot to keep building. Yeah, I know I would usually stop here since we finished a scenario. But I think we need to at least get another scenario started. So let's crank that up. The group needs to decide what their next move is going to be. We know they're exceptionally annoyed at this point. They're probably going to try to chase down another lead. Mass logistics is probably going to be what comes to mind. Since they know Malloy is connected to it, we can assume for the record that Mackenzie Cook gave them at the very least the general location of the company, if not the actual address. And it just so happens the company sits about a half hour's walk south of their current location. Now, for those who've been keeping track of where we are on a map of St. Louis, we're going to be near some very familiar territory, since it's right on the edge of the hill, which is where iRobotics is located. It's not technically on the hill, but it's pretty close. And with the way things went the last time they were on the hill, they might want to consider skirting it without actually entering it. Now, I'm not going to lay out an exact address of the location of the building. That's okay, though, because we just need to know where it's near. What I will say is the facility's huge. It takes up an entire square city block, and the building is two stories high. The building's old, and we'll say for the record that it was a manufacturing plant of some sort before the bombs fell. What is it these days? Well, let's build it out. One of the more notable things about mass logistics is the fact that there is no rubble in the blocks that surround it. Whatever buildings stand on these blocks are functioning, so whenever there's an empty space, that would mean the rubble was cleaned up. There's also 10-foot-high fencing topped with razor wire circling the property. There's also a mob of iBots floating around the fence line, obviously acting as the first line of security. Now, stats for iBots are on page 359, and checking those out, we can see they're going to be pretty easy to take out. Most likely, one shot drops. If the group decides to do this sort of entry, they'll need to take out four in order to make a hole in the security large enough to get through. And the fencing can be fairly easily cut to gain entry, so we're not going to bother with it here. If they're checking, they notice a small army of sentry bots and protectrons working the property, so they may decide they want to go with a quieter entry. If they want to go full Rambo, though, let them do so. You decide how many of which they're going to face, and then run it. But there is a sneaky way to get in. It'll take some serious searching around the perimeter, and rather than rolls, we're going to say it takes time. They spend a half hour checking the area. They find an old sewer pipe leading away from the building, and it's open. So they can walk on in, if they want to. Of course, this does seem too good to be true, but it'll be a lot easier than pulling a full frontal assault. 
There is security down here, but it's all wall-mounted laser turrets. Stats for these are on page 380, and there will be two of them on opposite sides of the pipe every 150 feet or so for the length of the pipe. And considering it's about 150 yards from the entrance to when they enter the building, that's a lot of turrets to take down. But it shouldn't be too hard on them. When they reach the end of the pipe, there are metal ladder rungs attached to the concrete and they lead up 50 feet to the access hatch. The hatch is unlocked and they can easily raise it up. They emerge on the production floor and they quickly see what is being produced. Synths. Lots and lots of synths. Think a bottling plant, only with synth assembly. I'll let you build on that because we're done building for the week. That means it's time to get in our recap from my game, but let's first detail what happened last time. Last time, the group decided to take on the fourth job from their job list and headed south towards the Lime Ferry. They ran into a group of Mirelurks, which they dealt with, then a swarm of Stingwings, which they also dealt with. They made their way to the ferry, met with Martin, and made their deal for hunting ragstags for money. We ended the session right as the negotiations were completed. We picked up with the group getting ready to be shuttled across the Merrimack River to go hunting ragstags. If you've forgotten what that write-up looks like, we did it about, what, month, month and a half ago? So check it out in the archives. The group successfully crossed the river and began heading for the suggested hunting spot. I decided to play it a lot like I wrote it, which was to have the group on on the edge, as it were, by first feeling like they were being watched, then actually having them watched. They made it to the hunting spot and almost immediately came upon a small pack of ragstags. They got their shots in and dropped three of them. Then, as we wrote it up, they were approached by a group of Lagerfelds who were hell-bent on kicking them off the land. As is the group's tendency, they asked if they could try to talk them down, or more to the point, convince them that giving them a little bit of time might be in their best interest. I set the difficulty rather high for Clayton to roll, and did a counter roll of my own, but as has been the case recently, the group rolled better than I did, so the Lagerfelds agreed for a price to give the group three hours to hunt. I didn't write down how many caps they exchanged, but it wasn't a bad deal for the group. So, knowing they were on the clock, as it were, it was almost suggested by Gabe they split up, but he realized as he was saying it that it was a bad idea. And when Jim and Scott finished his thought for him, it was obvious that you never split the party. Take notes on that, kids. They were making rolls to find more ragstags, and I decided to have them come across a cave, which they did, and for it to have two Yao Guai, which it did. I'd anticipated the fight to be more difficult, which it wasn't, thanks to the judicious use of a missile launcher and a Molotov cocktail. So they got a couple of those as well. In the end, they got enough ragstags for a significant payout. I think it came out to something like 310 caps per party member. Okay, so maybe to you that's not significant, but remember, I have an eight-member party to run for. They shot off a flare to alert Martin they were on their way back to the ferry stop. Now, there was supposed to be a running gunfight at the end of this part of the scenario, but since the group had paid for three hours in the area, and they were still technically within it, I decided the Lagerfelds would not shoot at them. And since this fight was predicated on the Lagerfelds firing first, the Mitchells didn't fire either. There were a few nasty looks and some words exchanged, but the group got to the ferry, got on, and crossed. They settled up with Martin, then headed back home. 
Now, I do need to note that both Jim and Tyler's robots have some upgraded sensors on them, and I'll get a little bit deeper into those in a future episode. I mentioned that here because I'd written up the next scenario as an ambush. However, the sensors sort of took that away because the robots were able to pick up the ambush before Garson Tactical could launch their missiles. The missiles still launched, but the group had spread out to the point that minimal damage was done. They fought at distance until it became necessary to close in. Before that happened, Gabe just happened to remind me that he has the mysterious stranger perk and wondered if he'd ever get to see him. So on the fly, I had a mysterious person get behind the Garson attackers, and as the group would incapacitate one, he'd perform a coup de grace. More on that later. Needless to say, they survived the ambush and returned to the third base saloon. They reported to Victor, who, as we wrote it, was surprised. However, due to the group not taking certain actions that had been anticipated in the setup to the encounter, the group isn't wanted by Garson at this point. Ergo, Victor hadn't paid him. He did agree, however, to look into the situation. We ended the session with the group leveling up and shopping since they just came into a nice sum of caps. So I'm left with a quandary moving forward. Do I go back and shoehorn the job that gets the group on the wanted list? Or do I just continue on the way things are and make adjustments to what comes next? I'm going to think on that for the next week and I'll let you know what I come up with. If I do decide to write up some new or different stuff, I'll do it as a special episode since this show is already way ahead of where the group is. So we come to the end of today's show. Next week, we'll pick up with the group Inside Mass Logistics and we'll see what they find. In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Roleplaying History. This week, we cover Battle Lords of the 23rd Century. It's definitely a game worth the listen. Roleplaying History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted materials of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out this or any of Modifius's other fine products, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.com. Net. Next week, we see what kind of shenanigans our group gets into inside the Mass Logistics building, and you know there's going to be shenanigans. That's next week, folks. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. Bye.